0: Welcome to Medical Mindfield, Field, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman.
1: And I'm Eve Simmons.
0: And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to.
1: This week, we're asking whether the boom in private healthcare is going to end up killing off the NHS.
0: As always, we'd like to know what you think. If you've got a question or have something to say, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag MedicalMineField.
1: Have you ever gone private, Eve? I have, a few times. We're very lucky, as you well know, Barney.
0: Divulging our status that we get private healthcare via our employer. So I've used it. I I've used too. it loads. I I've, have too. I've used it for all sorts. So when I was having relationship problems, I used it to get counselling.
1: That's a great idea. Wish I could have used that <laughs> for my relationship problems.
0: When when being at work all the time was destroying my relationship, <laughs> they pay, it paid off. So I got I got well, free psychotherapy. It was great. Every
1: cloud, eh?
0: Yeah. And what else? I've had. I've actually I've had major surgery as well. I had lower bowel surgery. Oh wow! Yeah. And that was, you know, I didn't have to wait. I got uh, treatment when it was convenient, so I didn't have to miss work. I mean, that's presumably why, they. But it can have a drawback because uh, for something else that I've been treated for, I ended up going through work and being prescribed a medicine. And then it turns out I need it long term and it's quite expensive. And then you have to go through the rigmarole of seeing an NHS doctor. Mm. If you actually need something, you mm. should get it on the mm. NHS. Because, of course, in addition to paying 100 quid a month towards private healthcare, we pay 20% of our salary towards mm. the NHS, mm. or sorry, rather, 20% of our tax pound towards the NHS. Yep. So, you know, we, we are all paying for healthcare. As well, it's not like you opt out of paying for NHS care if you go private.
1: Mm, exactly, a good point. No. I used our insurance when um, I had some hormonal problems and the NHS wouldn't refer me to a specialist, so I had to go to the insurer.
0: Why wouldn't they <laughs> refer you? <clears throat>
1: they didn't recognise the condition as something that needed treatment, which is a whole other ball game. Wow. It's basically lack of periods or irregular periods. Oh yeah, you've um, written about that, which I have written about. Interestingly, actually, the private GP that I saw, who it's very kind of streamlined service, they will just offer you a referral and then you go see somebody on the same private insurance. And the private GP I saw also said mm, we don't really refer for this unless you have a symptom that's causing pain or you've got irregular bleeding or anything. And so I, I had irregular bleeding, and then I got, got my bad referral. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I hope it gets sorted, Eve. Oh, it's fine now. Well, the reason we're talking about this isn't because we uh, absolutely love talking about our um, health treatments, but it's more and more people are going private because they have to. It's no secret the NHS is absolutely heaving at the seams. There are 7 million people waiting for treatment at present and that number seems to be going up and up and up. You are writing about this week, Eve, mm. and you pulled out the fact that there's three quarters of a million people waiting for a joint replacement or a mm-hmm. hip or knee replacement mm-hmm. and 600,000 people waiting for cataracts. And some people have been waiting for up to five years?
1: Yeah, I think it was a report that came out, I think, a couple of weeks ago showing that... That there are a few hundred people who are waiting, for, who have been on the waiting list for five years.
0: That's insane. So huge numbers of people going private. I spoke this week to Vitality Healthcare, who said that they've seen a 35% increase in subscribers to their private health insurance. Mm-hmm. That's uh, more than double what it was uh, the year before, all the other health insurance providers have seen similar spikes, and, and you've heard similar things from the hospitals who offer private mm. treatment to people who are self paying.
1: Yeah, that's I think is the most fascinating thing is that people are now kind of mixing and matching NHS treatment with just a one off procedure that they can just pay for. Some of them have been saving for years and years because they knew they're probably going to have to get their cataracts got done at some point and they didn't want the hassle of going through the NHS. You know, other people have, have encountered a problem and thought, I'm gonna going to remortgage the house or do something else. But, you know, some of the leading providers are seeing twice the amount of people self-paying for procedures now than they were before the pandemic. So that's obviously kind of
0: sparked it as well. As the son of two NHS, lifelong NHS (laughs) doctors, I think when they discover that I've had all my treatment recently privately, they will absolutely flip out.
1: I mean, that was going to be my question. Can you be supportive of a private system and simultaneously champion the NHS? I
0: I think I was brought up thinking it was something, there was something vaguely immoral about the whole thing. Mm, Me too. And that, you know, we should all support the NHS... And by opting out and just throwing money at a problem, you're not in with everyone else Mm. and trying to make the system better and fairer and more supportive for everyone, which is you know, what, what the whole point of the NHS is.
1: And I think that there's comparisons often made to America, aren't there? That, you know, the kind of scary uh, anecdote of somebody falling off a bike or being hit by a car and being picked up by a paramedic and asked whether they're insured before they're treated. And there's a worry that we'll end up like that, which I don't think Absolutely. we ever
0: will. Well, I mean, you say that, but, you know, in, in America, as American listeners will know, mm. it's private only, so everyone has to pay for everything. And although people do have insurance if you don't have insurance you are in trouble Mm. that you can thanks to Obamacare uh, get certain kinds of things covered automatically but many people don't get treatment for things and one of the reasons that for instance we were told that so many more children died of Covid during the pandemic Mm. in America than over here for instance was because people delayed taking their kids to uh, the doctor when they were you know suffering from terrible breathing problems because they didn't want
1: to pay they couldn't Because afford they it. couldn't
0: afford it mm. And you know, if we don't look after our NHS, if we don't support the NHS and we just opt out and pay, that in fact all that will happen would you know, it'll be a self fulfilling prophecy and there will be fewer doctors working mm. for the NHS because it's too stressful and they'll they'll all be working for the private customer. And um, I guess
1: the more that the private demand is there, the more consultants you're gonna get thinking, Screw this, I don't wanna work for the NHS anymore. There's plenty of work out there for me. Off I go.
0: So it is absolutely, you know, not a simple, Mm. well, if people can afford to pay for it, then fine, let them. The thing is, it's no longer going to be a niche thing. Mm,
1: mm. You know,
0: with 7 million people, with all these people, anyone that can afford to really is going to be starting to think, shall I go private? Before we go on, let's first of all talk to Dr. David Strain, who works within the NHS and probably has a few opinions on this. David, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us today. There's a surge in demand for private healthcare, sort of unsurprisingly, considering that we've got so many hundreds of thousands of people waiting for routine operations. Is there a risk to the NHS from doing this? Or is it, you know, is it a good thing? Are they just alleviating the pressure?
2: With all of these things, there are pros and cons. Actually, by patients who can afford it, choosing to use private healthcare to get their operations done, that actually has two things. Firstly, they get their operation done quicker, but also it eases the pressure on the waiting list for those who may not be able to afford the private health insurance and might have their priorities elsewhere. For as long as it continues like that, this makes sense. But there there are some cautions around the use of private healthcare. For example, if you need anything done as an emergency or if you're a more high-risk individual, The safest place to be is within the NHS. I think our prime minister, when he had COVID himself, you will notice that he went to an NHS hospital because we have by far and away the best and the most comprehensive services for those sorts of emergency care. There's also another risk to the NHS if there is a whole scale move to the private sector for some procedures. And this has been mooted in some of the any qualified provider provisions within the health and social care bill that if, for example, you move all knee replacements to a private sector, that jeopardizes the ability of the health service to continue to train specialists and continue to innovate with those procedures because the private sector doesn't have the same responsibility at the moment, at least, for both training new doctors, training new specialists, and also providing the innovation and the research that traditionally takes place in the the university teaching hospitals.
0: I think some people are rightly worried by the idea that there aren't enough doctors to go round, you know, to see private patients and NHS patients. And in fact, although I'm sure it was a a minority, there were stories during the pandemic of of GPs who were seeing private patients face-to-face but not their NHS patients. And uh, cosmetic doctors, for instance, continuing to operate and do boob jobs and all sorts of other kind of private procedures and not pitching in to do NHS work. Is there a worry that as demand increases, as more people are prepared to shell out, there'll be fewer people doing NHS clinics it would exacerbate the problem.
2: There will always be a fine balance between NHS and private practice and remember the vast majority of education of training and of work even of private consultants is still within the NHS however as there are some rather perverse tax disincentives to continue working more hours in the NHS, we do see more and more NHS consultants needing, being forced by this disincentive to cut back their NHS hours. And as a result, they will pick up the extra salary, they will be doing extra work within the private sector in order to make up their salaries. I don't think there is likely to be a whole scale move from the NHS. Um, the vast majority of doctors are trained in the NHS. We enjoy working in the NHS and the a- NHS is actually more than just the salary that goes with it. And as a result, I don't see we will see this wholesale shift. I think those cases that you speak of during the pandemic were by far and away the exceptions. The vast majority of GPs were doing a tremendous amount of work, albeit not face to face but they were doing a tremendous amount of work, many of them working harder than they've ever worked during the pandemic. And at least locally, those specialists in food jobs, as you say, actually, they spend most of the first wave of the pandemic acting down, using their skills in just the more manual things, to be doing the cannulations, to be doing lots of the more practical aspects of COVID management. So at least locally, we didn't see any of this that you're talking about. I can't say it didn't happen, But those anecdotes are the exception, not the rule.
1: David, are there any circumstances where you would think that actually going private for something might get you more options, better care? Is there any kind of medical scenario where you might recommend that?
2: There are some diseases that work within long term conditions, particularly that work based on nice guidance that has to do a very delicate balance within the NHS to balance affordability, cost effectiveness, and demand. And there are some conditions that can almost skip the affordability element, because if you take that out, there are often different therapies, more expensive therapies that can have much, much better long-term outcomes, but are associated with a rather unwieldy upfront costs. And when we've got an NHS that has to live within a very, very tight earth string, we have to balance affordance.
1: Can you give any examples?
2: Absolutely. So in in cases such as diabetes, up until very recently, the management of diabetes had to take a very cost centric view, because so many people have the disease Mm -hmm. and as more expensive drugs came available, then we were not able to prescribe that to absolutely everybody who would benefit from it. Now, in private sector, they were able to implement the evidence base much, much quicker because within the private sector, the conversation was far more a one-on-one Would you be prepared to pay more for this drug now that will give you benefits in 15 to 20 years' time?
0: There is this sort of perception that you get better care if you can afford it. And it would seem to be you're saying that is the case in in some instances.
2: In some instances, and better care is a very difficult term to quantify, but there are some cases that private will offer you more options than you may get within the NHS. And actually, probably the most important part of the private sector where it comes in is the time afforded. Time with your GP, time with your consultant is very limited because of All of the the pressures and actually the constant understaffing that the NHS is still suffering from. If you're praying for it, then you get longer time. And actually, that time is a really important component of your management. Time to discuss your disease more carefully, time to weigh up the options and discuss those different elements. And actually, that is something that I do think is incredibly valuable, particularly in long-term conditions that are going to be with you for the rest of your life, so you get a better understanding.
0: David, uh, I, you don't mind me asking, have you ever gone private?
2: I personally have never gone private for myself, nor have I actually seen any patients privately. Many doctors say that. That being said, very recently we've paid privately to have my wife to have a carpal tunnel released. And that was all based around the waiting list and me knowing the consultant really well and knowing that it would be an NHS consultant and actually an NHS team who's doing private work on his day off. And in order to get my wife fully functional and get the kids packed lunches prepared, we decided to shell out, out of our own pockets in order to do it. So I'm not against private sector.
0: Was that a big decision for you to actually do that, having you know worked within the NHS for your entire career?
2: It it was because it was a case of this summer, are we going to have a summer holiday or are we going to get this operation done just that little bit quicker? And that's the choice we made. And actually, we thought for the well-being of the overall household, it was well worth it. And and yes, it was a big decision. But at the end of the day, we could afford it. We made the choice. And it also meant that somebody else who couldn't afford it was that one place higher up the waiting list in order to get their procedure done. Mm.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Good point, good point. Um, well, look, David, th- thanks very much for finding time to talk to us.
2: You're very welcome.
0: I was interested in his point about time. Mm. It's very true, having had the luxury of a private doctor's consultation on more than one occasion, you can sit there for yep. many, many minutes blathering on about your sore left knee or whatever it is. And there's not that time pressure, is there? Mm.
1: I mean, I must say, even though I don't have an NHS comparison necessarily, the consultant that I saw privately when I had some gastro problems was wonderful and dedicated so much extra time to just sitting and exactly that, talking me through every step, talking me through procedures that maybe aren't that evidence-based and are experimental and, and saying I could have this, but, you know, discussing all the risks involved... And my appointments definitely went on for half an hour or something like that.
0: Mm. Speaking of time, actually, when I signed up for the local NHS GP just down the road from here, I was given this extraordinary long appointment with a nurse who needed to do a health check before I could start receiving my prescriptions Mm, and all of that kind of stuff. And it was basically she spent half an hour asking me whether I liked eating pasta or Had I considered having a bit of pasta <coughs> is that, is with vegetables, nutritional stuff. education mm, from a nurse, okay, which I couldn't think was the best <laughs> uh, use of NHS time.
1: I think it's a tick uh, box exercise, isn't it? Well, the fact
0: is that I do enjoy pasta with vegetables. As
1: does every normal person. Mm.
0: Anyway, my point was, I think that the NHS GP that I have is brilliant, mm. and. Okay, the service has changed dramatically. Um, You can't go in and have an appointment face to face straight away. Um, You're going
1: to see someone different every time.
0: Well, actually, I've I've had the same person. Have you? Yeah, quite a few times over the years. And, you know, she's brilliant. And yes, I do have to wait. I've had to wait a month to get even a telephone appointment Mm. but I didn't need to be seen any sooner it was you know annoying and you have to start thinking okay I'm going to need to change my prescription for something because I'm going to run out I need to ask an extra question I do have three or four weeks supply left of something but I'm going to make that appointment now Mm,
1: mm. so
0: you know it's kind of trying to work within the system and essentially everything that you get from you know the expertise to the fact that you know we get free medication basically or you know we pay a prescription Mm -hmm. fee it's it's fantastic
1: i must say i was through doing this piece i was quite surprised at the price of some of these procedures that they're not actually as high as i assumed
0: oh really yeah well i mean no no
1: like i mean look when if you're looking at procedures for serious conditions like Hot operations and that kind of thing then yes you're looking at hundreds of thousands of pounds in some cases but things like hip operations cataract operations you know if you're talking kind of
0: what's it for a cataract 5, about
1: 000, it's about between 1800 pounds and 3500 pounds per eye oh, yeah. depending on what kind of lens you choose and um, where you have it done that kind of thing
0: I was watching the other day someone doing a vox pops, asking people if they realised how much certain procedures cost, and it was very interesting to see how.
1: What do people they, think that it that it was cheaper than it is? Or endlessly
0: saying, you know, oh, how much do you think you know an MRI scan is? And mm. people would say, oh, I don't know, fifty quid. You know, actually, it's mm. five hundred.
1: That's what's quite interesting. Things like that, the smaller tests and the consultations, are way more expensive than you think that they should be. But some of the procedures, you can understand why that's kind of as, you know, Dr. Strain said that you'd kind of skip going on holiday that year, which you'd spend, what, a couple of thousand pounds for a family and instead have an operation that you need.
0: Next, we've got someone who will explain just how beneficial having health insurance is on the line now we've got brian walters a broker with private healthcare specialist regency health brian thanks very much for finding some time to talk to us on medical minefield one thing that i thought was fascinating when we we spoke was if you have private healthcare insurance and it pays out it can sometimes pay out a huge amount can't it so for instance if you have cancer treatment and you have private health insurance i mean you've been involved in claims that sort of up to half a million is that right
3: it is, yeah. I mean, they're mercifully rare and nearly always to do with cancer. But we've seen several claims up at 100,000. We've seen two at a quarter of a million. And the one that you're referring to, it was just shy of half a million. I think it was about 470,000. And that was a leukemia claim. So, yeah, that, that is when private medical insurance really comes into its own.
0: Look, we're talking today because obviously the NHS is, is struggling to perform certain kinds of things. There are large numbers of people waiting for routine operations. And uh, many people are thinking, should I go private? What would you say to them?
3: Private healthcare has always been a viable alternative to the NHS. But of course, it really depends whether you can afford it. And most private healthcare, most private health procedures are funded by insurance. But of course, that needs to be purchased prior to the event. Certainly in the personal market, as opposed to the group market, private medical insurance doesn't cover pre-existing conditions. So if you find yourself in need of a medical procedure now, when the NHS waiting list is obviously spiralling due to COVID, then the alternative is self-pay, is to contact your local private hospital and speak to them about a, a self-pay package. I think
0: people who haven't got private health care insurance, I always think about um, times that I've tried to claim on my home contents insurance for a boiler blowing up and things like that. <laughs> it never happens, no matter no. how many tick boxes and extra bits that you pay You're on, on the that phone for about
1: three days. You're on the phone
0: for three days and it yeah. always comes back as a no is, is that the case with private healthcare? Do they always catch you out?
3: No, no, not generally. I mean, as with all forms of insurance, there is small print. But more pertinently, there is a scope of cover. And there are generally three types of problem. The first is where the condition is excluded because it's pre-existing. And often that has to do with how the policy was arranged originally. If somebody has just gone online and bought a policy without any advice, then they're probably not cognizant of how the insurer will treat their pre-existing conditions at the point of claim. So that's why we would always encourage people to take advice. The second is where something simply falls outside the scope of cover. All insurance policies have a scope of cover. So for example, when it comes to private medical insurance, one of the main exclusions is accident and emergency. So anything like that wouldn't be covered. Chronic conditions, the monitoring and maintenance of chronic conditions, that is a standard exclusion on nearly all Private medical insurance policies. From time to time, obviously, we do get situations where insurers decline claims and we don't think they have been correctly declined, and that's where we will advocate for the client and work with the insurer to try and work through the issues to see if we can get the claim paid. But those situations are mercifully rare.
0: Do they change their minds when you get involved?
3: A lot of the time, yes. Interesting. Yeah. I would say if a client approaches us with a claims issue, eight or nine times out of ten, we're able to resolve it.
1: What are the most common problems that you're able to resolve?
3: Administrative problems, often. So, for example, we dealt with an issue yesterday where a lady phoned us because she had phoned her insurer. They had told her that they would need to do some investigations because her policy had been arranged on a particular basis. And that was not correct. The insurer had an error on its system. And so the client came to us, explained what had happened. And we Im- immediately realised that this was just down to an administrative error. And so we contacted the insurer, pointed out that error, they fixed the error, and phoned the client to authorise the claim.
0: The thing that I was really surprised about when I spoke to you, Brian, was that you seem to find what you do incredibly rewarding, considering that you work in financial services, essentially you know, you're really passionate about, you know, you feel like what you do is improving people's lives a great deal.
3: Yes, I, I think to some degree. I mean, I think it might just be because I'm a bit sad in terms of <laughs> oh. in, in, in terms of enjoying my job, but we do. It is, it is rewarding. It's particularly rewarding to be able to provide reassurance to a client at the point of need. I think one of the problems with incorrectly declined claims in the medical insurance market, and again, they are rare, but one of the problems is that when a policyholder is in that position, they are nearly always ill. Mm. And that is not the time where they want the stress and the anxiety and they really need somebody to fight their corner.
1: Mm.
3: So that is particularly rewarding. When we have arranged a policy and somebody is then able to use it, let's say for extensive cancer treatment, that is a strange one because of course, on the one hand, there's a, a small sense of gratification that you've arranged something that has made a very big difference to somebody's life. At their time of need, but of course, on the other hand, there, there's no satisfaction because that person's just been diagnosed with cancer. So it's a it's a bit of a strange one.
0: What do you think of the American healthcare system, where everything is private?
3: Personally, that's not something that I would want to see here. I think a, a well-funded public health care system is a cornerstone of civilized society. You know, despite making my living from the private health care market, that's absolutely not something that I would want to see. What I would say is that the conversation about public health care and private health care often gets polarized. And often when people talk about possible alternatives to the NHS, they leap straight to the American system, you know, straight to the other end of that continuum almost. And of course, there are many, many different systems in between, especially in Europe, you know, blends of public and private healthcare. And I think eventually that is probably where we will end up in some form or another, because the NHS in its present guise, it just won't be sustainable in the longer term I think everybody knows that but of course it's not politically expedient to say so and I think that's damaging to the NHS because nobody can have a frank conversation about it it just sort of lurches from crisis to crisis and nobody's brave enough to try and do something about it because it's a vote loser yeah absolutely
0: well here's hoping Brian Walters thanks very much for finding time to talk to us
3: my pleasure thank you
2: hi Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones' Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk.
0: I thought that was a very good point. It isn't an all-or-nothing mm. type situation, and you know people do need to be more open-minded about what private healthcare can do in terms of integrating. Oh God, I went to a I can't remember if it was something at the House of Commons. Tesco really wants to uh, start moving into hospitals, work, working in the NHS. They feel that their their brand, their logos would align. Tesco NHS.
1: Is that the only? Is that the, the only reason why? Because of their logos? Yeah,
0: I think so. Right. Oh, that, okay. There's probably Sensible a killing decision. to be made. Yeah. But, <laughs> mm. but, you know, I mean, you get these kinds of ideas floated uh, that, mm. that, you know, private companies could integrate themselves. And I feel like people want to see fault in money, you know, when in fact private partnerships could be better utilised within the NHS.
1: I think that's true, but I think there's an inherent uncomfortableness... With the idea that somebody could get faster and better access to something because they have money,
0: yeah. But what about inviting commercial companies to provide uh, more services? You know, if the you know they could have the Tesco arthroscopy service, mm. where you know you would go in and you know you'd have a subscription you know 4 99 a month or something and and then anything Any will be scope covered you in want a,
1: it's yeah. covered I mean that
0: just was off the top of my head you well, know if you anyone go. wants to give me a ring and employ me as a consultant and uh, you know then flesh even, it even out more though. yeah, yeah. I'd flesh it out for them but do you see what I mean
1: I do see what you mean and I, I yeah I think that that area is probably to be explored but I also worry that we spend too much time doing that and not looking at the kind of fundamental problems with the NHS that need to be sorted out.
0: I did have an idea as well. I think everyone should be given a bill at the end of their NHS treatment for whatever it is. Oh, I remember you said this they should be sent an invoice and at the bottom of it, it should say zero paid for by the NHS. But it should total everything that you've received and how much it cost. And we should know how much we're getting for our tax.
1: But do they have to know how much it costs if it's free well
0: you know people you think people take the piss
1: don't you that's people why. do take the oh piss yeah. that's why I wanted to get <laughs> to the bottom of.
0: but people do take the piss people don't turn up to their appointments and people you know people take take the piss yeah but
1: then I think that it's about maybe you know in, introducing penalties for people who skip appointments
0: wow you're talking about no, but like fine what? old you know, Doris 10p or not something for turning up to her appointment
1: 10p or something but not giving her well, a big no ten p. she's had a p. lung removed it's
0: not, b- <laughs> it's not a bill. She wouldn't actually have to pay. It's just so she knows how much it costs she to might have get her lung confused. out. Oh, this is what you said to me last time. You said that people would get confused and think they had to pay. Exactly.
1: Then they'd remortgage the house and all sorts.
0: Yeah, but then they'd try and pay and they wouldn't be able to, <laughs> would they? Well, I
1: don't oh, know what the conclusion I is. Don't, I,
0: sometimes I think you disagree with this just to make me look silly.
1: No. <laughs> I just I I don't see what the point is in telling people. Waggy finger. It's not
0: waggy That's finger. That's how it comes across. I would, I would like to know. I would okay. not feel like there was a finger being wagged at me. I'd feel, I'd feel lavished upon. <laughs> Look what I got.
1: I think I'd feel, meh. Oh well. What do I do with this? <laughs> Chuck it in the bin.
0: Your approach <laughs> to finances, in a nutshell. <laughs> Well, look, that's all we've got time for. If you want to know more about what we've been talking about today, you can read all about it in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and tweet us with any questions or suggestions for Medical Minefield using the hashtag MedicalMindField or email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk.
1: We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.
0: Goodbye.